Section One of Red Men and White. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Wales. Red Men and White by Owen Wister. Section One. Little Bighorn Medicine. Part One. Something new was happening among the Crow Indians. A young pretender had appeared in the tribe. What this might lead to was unknown, alike to white men and to red. But the old Crow chiefs discussed it in their councils, and the soldiers at Fort Custer and the civilians at the agency twelve miles up the river, and all the white settlers in the valley discussed it also. Lieutenants Stirling and Haines, of the First Cavalry, were speculating upon it as they rode one afternoon. "'Can't tell about Indians,' said Stirling, "'but I think the Crows are too reasonable to go on the warpath.' "'Reasonable,' said Haines. He was young and new to Indians. "'Just so. Until you come to his superstitions, the Indian can reason as straight as you or I. He's perfectly logical.' logical echoed haines again he held the regulation eastern view that the indian knows nothing but the three blind appetites you'd know better remarked stirling if you'd been fightin' em for fifteen years they're as shrewd as aesop's fables just then two indians appeared around a bluff one old and shabby the other young and very gaudy riding side by side that's Cheschapa, said Stirling. That's the agitator in all his feathers. His father, you see, dresses more conservatively. The feathered dandy now did a singular thing. He galloped towards the two officers, almost as if to bear them down, and, steering much too close, flashed by, yelling, amid a clatter of gravel. Nice manners, commented Haines seems to have a chip on his shoulder. But Stirling looked thoughtful. Yes, he muttered, he has a chip. Meanwhile the shabby father was approaching. His face was mild and sad, and he might be seventy. He made a gesture of greeting. How? he said pleasantly, and ambled on his way. Now there you have an object lesson, said Stirling. Old pounded meat has no chip. The question is, are the fathers or the sons going to run the Crow Nation? Why did the young chap have a dog on his saddle? inquired Haines. I didn't notice it. For his supper, probably. Probably he's getting up a dance. He is scheming to be a chief. Says he is a medicine man and can make water boil without fire but the big men of the tribe take no stock in him. Not yet. They've seen soda water before. But I'm told this water-boiling astonishes the young. You say the old chiefs take no stock in him yet? Ah, that's the puzzle. I told you just now Indians could reason. And I was amused. Because you're an Eastern man. I tell you, Haines, if it wasn't my business to shoot Indians, I'd study them. You're a crank, said Haines. But Stirling was not a crank. 
he knew that so far from being a mere animal the indian is of a subtlety more ancient than the sphinx in his primal brain nearer nature than our own the directness of a child mingles with the profoundest cunning he believes easily in powers of light and darkness yet is a skeptic all the while sterling knew this but he could not know just when if ever the young charlatan cheschapa would succeed in cheating the older chiefs just when if ever he would strike the chord of their superstition till then they would reason that the white man was more comfortable as a friend than as a foe that rations and gifts of clothes and farming implements were better than battles and prisons once their superstition was set alight these three thousand crows might suddenly follow jeschapa to burn and kill and destroy how does he manage his soda-water do you suppose inquired haines that's mysterious he has never been known to buy drugs and he's careful where he does his trick he's still a little afraid of his father all indians are it's queer where he was going with that dog hard galloping sounded behind them and a courier from the indian agency overtook and passed them hurrying to fort custer the officers hurried too and arriving received news and orders forty sioux were reported up the river coming to visit the crows it was peaceable but untimely the sioux agent over at pine ridge had given these forty permission to go without first finding out if it would be convenient to the crow agent to have them come it is a rule of the indian bureau that if one tribe desire to visit another the agents of both must consent now most of the crows were farming and quiet and it was not wise that a visit from the sioux and a season of feasting should tempt their hearts and minds away from the tilling of the soil the visitors must be taken charge of and sent home very awkward though said sterling to haines he had been ordered to take two troops and arrest the unoffending visitors on their way the sioux will be mad and the crows will be madder what a bungle and how like the way we manage indian affairs and so they started thirty miles away by a stream towards which sterling with his command was steadily marching through the night the visitors were gathered there was a cook fire and a pot and a stewing dog leaped in the froth old men in blankets and feathers sat near it listening to young cheschapa's talk in the flighty lustre of the flame an old squaw acted as interpreter between crow and sioux round about at a certain distance the figures of the crowd lounged at the edge of the darkness two grizzled squaws stirred the pot spreading a clawed fist to their eyes against the red heat of the coals while young cheschapa harangued the older chiefs and more than that i cheschapa can do said he boasting in indian fashion i know how to make a white man's heart soft so he cannot fight he paused for effect but his hearers seemed uninterested 
"'You have come pretty far to see us,' resumed the orator, "'and I and my friend Two Whistles and my father Pounded Meat "'have come a day to meet you and bring you to our place. "'I have brought you a fat dog. "'I say it is good the crow and the Sioux shall be friends. "'All the crow chiefs are glad. "'Pretty Eagle is a big chief, and he will tell you what I tell you. "'But I am bigger than Pretty Eagle. I am a medicine man.' He paused again, but the grim old chiefs were looking at the fire and not at him. He got a friendly glance from his henchman to Whistles, but he heard his father give a grunt. That enraged him. "'I am a medicine man,' he repeated defiantly. I have been in the big hole in the mountains where the river goes, and spoken there with the old man who makes the thunder. I talked with him as one chief to another. I am going to kill all the white men." At this old Pounded Meat looked at his son angrily, but the son was not afraid of his father just then. I can make medicine to bring the rain, he continued. I can make water boil when it is cold. With this I can strike the white man blind when he is so far that his eyes do not show his face. He swept out from his blanket an old cavalry sabre painted scarlet. Young Two Whistles made a movement of awe, but Pounded Meat said, My son's tongue has grown longer than his sword. Laughter sounded among the old chiefs. Cheschapah turned his impudent yet somewhat visionary face upon his father. "'What do you know of medicine?' said he. Two sorts of Indians are among the crows to-day,' he continued to the chiefs. "'One sort are the fathers, and the sons are the other. The young warriors are not afraid of the white man. The old plant corn with the squaws.' Is this the way with the Sioux? With the Sioux, remarked a grim visitor, no one fears the white man. But the young warriors do not talk much in council. Pounded Meat put out his hand gently, as if in remonstrance. Other people must not chide his son. You say you can make water boil with no fire, pursued the Sioux, who was named Young Man Afraid of His Horses, and had been young once. Pounded Meat came between. My son is a good man, said he. These words of his are not made in the heart, but are head words you need not count. Cheschapah does not like peace. He has heard us sing our wars and the enemies we have killed, and he remembers that he has no deeds, being young. When he thinks of this, sometimes he talks words without sense. But my son is a good man." The father again extended his hand, which trembled a little. The Sioux had listened, looking at him with respect, and forgetful of Cheschapah, who now stood before them with a cup of cold water. "'You shall see,' he said, "'who it is that talks words without sense.' Two whistles and the young bucks crowded to watch, but the old men sat where they were. As Cheschapah stood relishing his audience, Pounded Meat stepped up suddenly and upset the cup. He went to the stream and refilled it himself. Now, 
Make it boil, said he. Cheschapah smiled, and as he spread his hand quickly over the cup, the water foamed up. Ah, said Two Whistles, startled. The medicine man quickly seized his moment. What does pounded meat know of my medicine, said he? The dog is cooked. Let the dance begin. The drums set up their dull, blunt beating, and the crowd of young and less important bucks came from the outer circle nearer to the council. Cheschapah set the pot in the midst of the flat camp to be the center of the dance. None of the old chiefs said more to him, but sat apart with the empty cup, having words among themselves. The flame reared high into the dark and showed the rock wall towering close, and at its feet the light lay red on the streaming water. The young Sioux stripped naked of their blankets, hanging them in a screen against the wind from the jaws of the canyon, with more constant shouts as the drumming beat louder, and strokes of echo fell from the black cliffs. The figures twinkled across each other in the glare, drifting and alert, till the dog-dance shaped itself into twelve dancers with a united sway of body and arms, one and another singing his song against the lifted sound of the drums. The twelve sank crouching in simulated hunt for an enemy, back and forth, over the same space, swinging together. Presently they sprang with a shout upon their feet, for they had taken the enemy. Cheschapah, leading the line closer to the central pot, began a new figure, dancing the pursuit of the bear. This went faster, and after the bear was taken followed the elk hunt and a new sway and crouch of the twelve gesturing bodies. The thudding drums were ceaseless, and as the dance went always faster and always nearer the dog-pot, the steady blows of sound inflamed the dancers. Their chests heaved, and their arms and bodies swung alike as the excited crew filed and circled closer to the pot, following Cheschapah and shouting uncontrollably. They came to firing pistols and slashing the air with knives, when suddenly Cheschapah caught up a piece of steaming dog from the pot, gave it to his best friends, and the dance was done. The dripping figures sat quietly, shining and smooth with sweat, eating their dog-flesh in the ardent light of the fire and the cool splendor of the moon. By and by they lay in their blankets to sleep at ease. The elder chiefs had looked with distrust at Cheschapah as he led the dance. Now that the entertainment was over, they rose with gravity to go to their beds. It is good for the Sioux and the Crows to be friends, said Pounded Meat, to young man afraid of his horses, but we want no war with the white man. It is a few young men who say that war is good now. We have not come for war, replied the Sioux. We have come to eat much meat together, and remember that day when war was good on the Little Horn, and our warriors killed Yellow Hair and all his soldiers. Pounded Meat came to where he and Cheschapah had their blankets. "'We shall have war,' said the confident son to his father. "'My medicine is good.' 
Peace is also pretty good, said Pounded Meat. Get new thoughts. My son, do you not care any more for my words? Cheschapah did not reply. I have lived a long while, yet one man may be wrong, but all cannot be. The other chiefs say what I say. The white men are too strong. They would not be too strong if the old men were not cowards. Have done, said the father sternly. If you are a medicine man, do not talk like a light fool. The Indian has an honor thy father deep in his religion, too, and Cheschapah was silent. But after he was asleep, pounded meat lay brooding. He felt himself dishonored, and his son to be an evil in the tribe. With these sore notions keeping him awake, he saw the night wane into gray, and then he heard the distant snort of a horse. He looked and started from his blankets, for the soldiers had come, and he ran to wake the sleeping Indians. Frightened and ignorant why they should be surrounded, the Sioux leaped to their feet, and Sterling, from where he sat on his horse, saw their rushing frantic figures. "'Go quick, Kinney,' he said to the interpreter, "'and tell them it's peace, or they'll be firing on us.' Kinney rode forward alone, with one hand raised, and seeing that sign, they paused and crept nearer, like crafty rabbits, while the sun rose and turned the place pink. And then came the parley, and the long explanation. And Stirling thanked his stars to see they were going to allow themselves to be peaceably arrested. Bullet you get used to, but after the firing's done you must justify it to important personages who live comfortably in eastern towns and have never seen an Indian in their lives and are rancid with philanthropy and ignorance. Sterling would sooner have faced Sioux than sentimentalists, and he was fervently grateful to these savages for coming with him quietly, without obliging him to shoot them. Cheschapah was not behaving so amiably, and, recognizing him, Sterling understood about the dog. The medicine man, with his faithful two-whistles, was endeavoring to excite the prisoners as they marched down the river to the Crow Agency. Sterling sent for Kinney. "'Send that rascal away,' he said. "'I'll not have him bothering here.' The interpreter obeyed, but with a singular smile to himself. When he had ordered Cheschapah away, he rode so as to overhear Sterling and Haines talking. When they speculated about the soda-water, Kinney smiled again. He was a quiet sort of man. The people in the valley admired his business head. He supplied grain and steers to Fort Custer, and used to say that business was always slow in time of peace. By evening Sterling had brought his prisoners to the agency, and there was the lieutenant of Indian police of the Sioux come over from Pine Ridge to bring them home. There was restlessness in the air as night fell round the prisoners and their guard. It was Cheschapah's hour, and the young crows listened while he declaimed against the white man for thwarting their hospitality. 
the strong chain of sentinels was kept busy preventing these hosts from breaking through to fraternize with their guests. Cheschapah did not care that the old Crow chiefs would not listen. When Pretty Eagle remarked laconically that peace was good, the agitator laughed. He was gaining a faction, and the faction was feeling its oats. Accordingly, next morning, though the prisoners were meek on being started home by Sterling with twenty soldiers, and the majority of the Crows were meek at seeing them thus started, this was not all. Cheschapah, with a yelling swarm of his young friends, began to buzz about the column as it marched up the river. All had rifles. "'It's an interesting state of affairs,' said Sterling to Haines. "'There are at least fifty of these devils at our heels now, and more coming. We've got twenty men.' Haines, your Indian experiences may begin quite early in your career. Yes, especially if our prisoners take to kicking. Well, to compensate for spoiling their dinner party, the agent gave them some rations and his parting blessing. It may suffice. The line of march had been taken up by ten men in advance, followed in the usual straggling fashion by the prisoners and the rear-guard was composed of the other ten soldiers under Sterling and Haines. With them rode the chief of the Crow police and the lieutenant of the Sioux. This little band was, of course, far separated from the advanced guard, and it listened to the young Crow bucks yelling at its heels. They yelled in English. Every Indian knows at least two English words— they are pungent and far from complimentary. "'It's got to stop here,' said Sterling, as they came to a ford known as Reno's Crossing. "'They've got to be kept on this side.' "'Can it be done without gunpowder?' Haines asked. "'If a shot is fired now, my friend, it's war, and a court of inquiry in Washington for you and me, if we're not buried here. Sergeant, you will take five men and see the column is kept moving. The rest remain with me. The prisoners must be got across and away from their friends. The fording began, and the two officers went over to the east bank to see that the instructions were carried out. See that, observed Sterling, as the last of the rear guards stepped into the stream, the shore they were leaving filled instantly with the crows. Every man jack of them is armed. And here's an interesting development, he continued. It was Cheschapah riding out into the water, and with him two whistles. The rear guard passed up the trail, and the little knot of men with the officers stood halted on the bank. There were nine, the two Indian police, the two lieutenants, and five young muscular boys of K Troop of the 1st Cavalry. They remained on the bank, looking at the thick painted swarm that yelled across the ford. "'Bet you there's a hundred, remarked Haines. "'You forget I never gamble,' murmured Sterling. Two of the five long boys overheard this and grinned at each other, which Sterling noted, and he loved them. It was curious to mark the two shores. 
The feathered multitude and its yells and its fifty yards of rifles that fronted a small spot of white men sitting easily in the saddle, and the clear, pleasant water speeding between. Cheschapah and Two Whistles came tauntingly towards this spot, and the mass of crows on the other side drew forward a little. "'You tell them,' said Sterling to the chief of the Crow Police, "'that they must go back.' Cheschapah came nearer, by way of obedience. "'Take them over, then,' the officer ordered. The chief of Crow Police rode to Cheschapah, speaking and pointing. His horse drew close, shoving the horse of the medicine man, who now launched an insult that with Indians calls for blood. He struck the man's horse with his whip, and at that a volume of yells chorused from the other bank. "'Looks like a court of inquiry,' remarked Sterling. "'Don't shoot, boys,' he commanded aloud. The amazed Sioux policeman gasped. "'You not shoot?' he said. "'But he hit that man's horse. All the same hit your horse. All the same hit you.' "'Right. Quite right,' growled Sterling. All the same hit Uncle Sam, but we soldier-devils have orders to temporize. His eye rested hard and serious on the party in the water, as he went on speaking with jocular unconcern. Temporize, Johnny, said he. You savvy temporize? Oomp, me no savvy. Bully for you, Johnny. Too many syllables. Well, now, he's hit that horse again one more for the court of inquiry. Steady, men. There's two whistles switching now. They ought to call that lad Young Dog Tray. And there's a chap in paint fooling with his gun. If any more do that, it's very catching. Yes, we're going to have a circus. Attention! Now, what's that, do you suppose? An apparition, an old chief, came suddenly on the other bank pushing through the crowd, grizzled and little and lean, among the smooth, full-limbed young blood. They turned and saw him, and slunk from the tones of his voice and the light in his ancient eye. They swerved and melted among the cottonwoods, so that the ford's edge grew bare of dusky bodies, and looked sandy and green again. Cheschapah saw the wrinkled figure coming, and his face sank tame. He stood uncertain in the stream, seeing his banded companions gone and the few white soldiers firm on the bank. The old chief rode to him through the water, his face brightened with a last flare of command. "'Make your medicine,' he said. "'Why are the white men not blind? Is the medicine bad to-day?' And he whipped his son's horse to the right and to the left he slashed the horse of two whistles, and whirling the leather quirt, drove them cowed before him and out of the stream, with never a look or word to the white men. He crossed the sandy margin, and as a man drives steers to the corral, striking spurs to his horse and following the frightened animals close when they would twist aside, so did old pounded meat herd his son down the valley. Useful old man, remarked Sterling, and brings up his children carefully. Let's get these prisoners along. 
"'How rural the river looks now,' Haines said, as they left the deserted bank. So the Sioux went home in peace. The lieutenants, with their command of twenty, returned to the post, and all white people felt much obliged to Pounded Meat for his act of timely parental discipline. All except one white person. Saul Kinney sauntered into the agency store one evening. "'I want ten pounds of sugar,' said he, "'and navy plug, as usual.' And say, I'll uh, take another bottle of the seltzer fizz salts. Since I quit whiskey, he explained, my liver's poorly. He returned with his purchase to his cabin and set a lamp in the window. Presently the door opened noiselessly, and Cheschapah came in. Maybe you got that now, he said in English. The interpreter fumbled among bottles of liniment and vaseline and from among these household remedies brought the blue one he had just bought. Cheschapah watched him like a child, following his steps round the cabin. Kinney tore a half-page from an old Sunday world, and poured a little heap of salts into it. The Indian touched the heap timidly with his finger. "'Maybe no good,' he suggested. "'Heap good,' said the interpreter throwing a pinch into a glass. When Cheschapah saw the water effervesce, he folded his newspaper with the salt into a tight lump, stuck the talisman into his clothes, and departed, leaving Mr. Kinney well content. He was doing his best to nourish the sinews of war, for business in the country was discouragingly slack. Now, the Crows were a tribe that had never warred with us, but only with other tribes. They had been valiant enough to steal our cattle, but sufficiently discreet to stop there, and Kinney realized that he had uphill work before him. His dearest hopes hung upon Cheschapah, in whom he thought he saw a development. From being a mere humbug, the young Indian seemed to be getting a belief in himself as something genuinely out of the common. His success in creating a party had greatly increased his conceit, and he walked with a strut, and his face was more unsettled and visionary than ever. One clear sign of his mental change was that he no longer respected his father at all, though the lonely old man looked at him often with what in one of our race would have been tenderness. Cheschapah had been secretly maturing a plot ever since his humiliation at the crossing, and now he was ready. With his lump of newspaper carefully treasured, he came to two whistles. Now we go, he said. We shall fight with the Pygans. I will make big medicine, so that we shall get many of their horses and women. Then Pretty Eagle will be afraid to go against me in the council. Pounded meat whipped my horse. Pounded meat can cut his hay without Cheschapah, since he is so strong. But little Two-Whistles wavered. I will stay here, he ventured to say to the prophet. Does Two-Whistles think I cannot do what I say? I think you make good medicine. You are afraid of the Pygans? No, I am not afraid. I have hay the white man will pay me for. If I go, he will not pay me. If I had a father, I would not leave him. 
He spoke pleadingly, and his prophet bore him down by ridicule. Two Whistles believed, but he did not want to lose the money the agent was to pay for his hay. And so, not so much because he believed as because he was afraid, he resigned his personal desires. The next morning the whole band had disappeared with Cheschapah. The agent was taken aback at this marked challenge to his authority. Of course they had gone without permission, and even the old Crow chiefs held a council. Pretty Eagle resorted to sarcasm. He has taken his friends to the old man who makes the thunder, he said. But others did not feel sarcastic, and one observed, Cheschapah knows more than we know. Let him make rain, then, said Pretty Eagle. Let him make the white man's heart soft. The situation was assisted by a step of the careful Kinney. He took a private journey to Junction City, through which place he expected Cheschapah to return, and there he made arrangements to have as much whiskey furnished to the Indian and his friends as they should ask for. It was certainly a good stroke of business. The victorious raiders did return that way, and Junction City was most hospitable to their thirst. The valley of the Bighorn was resonant with their homeward yells. They swept up the river, and the agent heard them coming, and he locked his door immediately. He listened to their descent upon his fold, and he peeped out and saw them ride round the tightly shut buildings in their war-paint and the pride of utter success. They had taken booty from the Pygans, and now, knocking at the store, they demanded ammunition, proclaiming at the same time in English that Cheschapah was a big man and knew a big heap medicine. The agent told them from inside that they could not have any ammunition. He also informed them that he knew who they were, and that they were under arrest. This touched their primitive sense of the incongruous. On the buoyancy of the whiskey they rode round and round the store containing the agent, and then rushed away, firing shots at the buildings and shots in the air, and so gloriously home among their tribe while the agent sent a courier packing to Fort Custer. The young bucks who had not gone on the raid to the Pygans thronged to hear the story, and the warriors told it here and there, walking in their feathers among a knot of friends who listened with gay exclamations of pleasure and envy. Great was Cheschapah who had done all this. And one and another told exactly, and at length, how he had seen the cold water rise into foam beneath the medicine man's hand. It could not be told too often. Not every companion of Cheschapah's had been accorded the privilege of witnessing this miracle, and each narrator in his circle became a wonder himself to the bold boyish faces that surrounded him. And after the miracle he told how the Pygans had been like a flock of birds before the medicine man. Cheschapah himself passed among the groups, alone and aloof. He spoke to none, and he looked at none, and he noted how their voices fell to whispers as he passed. His ear caught the magic words of praise and awe. 
he felt the gaze of admiration follow him away, and a mist rose like incense in his brain. He wandered among the scattered tepees, and, turning, came along the same paths again, that he might once more overhear his worshippers. Great was Cheschapah! His heart beat, a throb of power passed through his body, and Great is Cheschapah! said he aloud. For the fumes of hallucination wherewith he had drugged others had begun to make him drunk also. He sought a tepee where the wife of another chief was alone, and at his light call she stood at the entrance and heard him longer than she had ever listened to him before. But she withstood the temptation that was strong in the young chief's looks and words. She did not speak much, but laughed unsteadily, and, shaking her head with averted eyes, left him and went where several women were together and sat among them. End of section one.